0: Good morning, Bethel. I think it's interesting. I think those of you that were able to join us at 9 a.m. this morning, I think it's interesting in God's providence that some of the issues that we considered this morning, both in the trip that Greg and Colleen and um, Andrea DeMeo and some other folks from InterVarsity took this summer, as well as um, Pedro and Stephanie's ministry in Chile. Um, some of the issues of the the great need. Certainly there's great spiritual need, but there is great physical, material need all around us. And how do we wrestle with those things? How do we care for the poor? How do we reach out? What what should that look like there? As well as asking ourselves those questions. Um, Luke 16 is addressing those issues. And the text that Todd read this morning was obviously chosen before I knew what Greg and Colleen or what Pedro and Stephanie were going to share this morning. So uh, the Lord obviously has um, some help for us as we wrestle with these issues. Um, So let's pray and then we will dive in. Father, we thank you that you are the father of mercies, You are merciful with um, a mercy that is beyond comprehension. It's hard to grasp how gracious, how merciful, how kind you have been and how kind you are to those who are completely undeserving and completely deserving of the opposite treatment. And Lord, I pray that we would not lose touch with our indebtedness, that we would not forget for those of us that are in Christ, that we would not forget the incalculable debt that our sin deserves, that it amasses, that it crushes us. We are utterly bankrupt spiritually. And the only pardon for that debt, the only way for it to be cleared, is for Jesus to pay it. Lord, if we have lost sight of that, lost touch with that, where we've forgotten the fact that we have been forgiven much, would you remind us of that this morning? We know that those who have been forgiven much love much. And if our love is little, then we are out of touch with our need. We are out of touch with all that we have been forgiven in the past and all of the sin that we commit now, even as believers and will commit in the future. Uh, we are so desperately needy. And apart from your grace, we have no hope. So I pray that we would we'd recognize how bankrupt we are this morning. And I pray that we would then see with greater clarity and hear with newly opened ears the greatness of your mercy. Lord, give us ears to hear from you this morning. Unstop, unclog our ears where we have gotten dull to your truth because we are listening to the wrong voices, where we are um, more focused on the things of this world. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and help us to be attentive to you and what you have to say. And then as we grasp and get our eyes on your mercies, I pray that it would affect us and there would be this welling up of a desire to be a merciful people, that we would be ready to love neighbors, whatever neighbors we come in contact with, with your love and mercy, extending that mercy to those around us in helpful, loving, authentic, sacrificial, joyful, creative ways. I pray that we wouldn't shrink back from those opportunities, but that we would press into them, trusting your grace and ability to give us what we need to love well. So we need your help, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I talked with someone this week, kind of an interesting point in the conversation. He was recounting a visit that he had with some friends. And the friends are very wealthy, and they love to live in a way that takes full advantage of their privilege, privileges. Um, this person was not sharing this with me in any sort of self-righteous or sanctimonious way, um, but rather he made an interesting comment because he said, I can't help but think that God is not being merciful to them because they are incredibly blessed materially, they are living it up in a sense and that's where their life is centered. And the fact that that's not bothering them and they don't seem to be concerned about others was actually really concerning this man. He was thinking, oh, this, is, this is a pitiable state. This is not an enviable state. Interesting orientation. I wonder how we would have viewed that scenario, that conversation. So, Jesus in Luke, as we've been walking through Luke, these last several chapters, he's had a lot to say about money. Um, He is certainly, most recently, said a lot about it in 16. And there's these two parables on either side of some some important instruction that we looked at last week. So there's the parable of this unrighteous manager which on the face of it seems really confusing, but the point is pretty simple. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, Jesus, in between these two parables, gives some implications and application that's so important. Um, We're going to touch on some of that as we walk through this parable in chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Um, But rather than taking time to, to connect all those dots of context, we'll wait until it comes up. But just... There is so much, even even back in chapter 10, chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 15, this is a really significant topic, and in a sense, this parable is going to close off some of that material before we move into chapter 17, and so um, it's an important parable as we consider these issues again this morning. So what we're going to do is look at the parable, and I'm going to read down through it and give some comment as we walk through So we'll consider the parable, some things that we might tend to miss as we read through it, a couple of brief points on the limits of this parable and understanding parables in general, and then we're going to just focus on some of the lessons that are drawn out of this parable. Um, There's probably a lot more, but I think I came up with how many letters? Is that six? G? Seven. Okay. Okay. So we'll consider those like that. So let's read through the text itself, um, and I'll make comments as we go along. If you're using a pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's one in the pew in front of you, and the text can be found on page 1044. So follow along as I begin there in verse 19. Jesus tells this story. Now there was a rich man, okay, and we'll notice quickly that he doesn't have a name, okay? This one who probably would have been very well-known in his day and time, he's anonymous, okay? So the somebody is actually nameless. That's important. And this rich man habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, okay? This is dressed to the nines in antiquity, Okay, Purple would have been on his outer garment. This is the richest, most expensive dye to make um, clothing this color. It's a significant process. It's expensive. Then the fine linen we would refer to this especially white, soft, fine undergarment that was worn next to the skin. And again, there was a significant process that you know, had to be gone through to produce this material. So to have one or the other was incredible privilege, but to dress in both habitually all the time is incredible wealth. Okay, so he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Okay, so this is no miserable millionaire. He's not ready to jump off a bridge, he is living it up and he loves it. He is a happy man. He's feasting like a king every day, and he's joyous, okay? Now, real quick, before we just stick this thing off at arm's length, one thing to consider here, is this extreme picture something that we should just immediately write off because we're not this well off, and we certainly don't live this extravagantly? You think that's the way that this should function in, in our minds and hearts right now as we're reading it? Sometimes we have a tendency to do that. If it doesn't seem to apply, then we just kind of, well, up? you're not talking about me. Okay, just wait. I doubt that's how it's intended to function. I think the point is that for anyone who's tempted to love money and serve it, remember Jesus had said just, we looked at it last week, no servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, he's addressing them. And a lot of the Pharisees, like I said last week, weren't necessarily known to be wealthy. Some of them were, but not all of them. Doesn't, you don't have to be wealthy to love money. I think the point is that for anyone who's tempted to love money and serve it, it's this, rich without rich toward God, which is the language of that rich fool back in chapter 10, in the end is worthless, okay? The extreme serves to say, even if you have it all, it will not help you in the end. So, so don't be jealous of it. Don't wish for it. Don't love it. Don't long for it. Don't desire to be rich. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's an illustration of that. We all need to hear that. Then, verse 20, there's a poor man who's got a name. His name is Lazarus. So, the poor man has a name. The nobody is identified. And he was laid at the gate. Does this mean he was an invalid? Maybe. Totally helpless. Poor man, Lazarus, was laid at his gate. The gate of this, I mean, so this guy's got to have a pretty significant place. To have a gate leading up to his home. He was laid at his gate, covered with sores. Okay, so the rich man's clothing, the finest clothing, dressed to the nines, Lazarus clothing, we don't know, but we do know that he's covered with sores. And he's longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Any bells ringing there? Any connection from some recent context? Longing to be fed? Who else was longing to be fed? The younger lost son. It's the same phrase. Luke fifteen sixteen. So what? Okay, well, there's an interesting connection. Is this, are we just after trivia-like details? I think the point of that is that this parable is doing the same thing that the lost son's parable is doing in part. At least there's connection there. Just as the younger son was the one who came to his senses and recognized his poverty and his need of mercy, so this poor man, who also longed to be fed, knew his poverty and his need of mercy. Whereas just like the older son was blind to his spiritual poverty and his need of mercy, so the rich man is blind to his spiritual poverty and his need of mercy. Okay, so it's reinforcing some of those same points. It goes on. Jesus goes on. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. If you're like me, the initial thought on this one is, oh, there's Lassie. You can always count on Lassie, you know, or your favorite dog from growing up, you know, man's best friend coming to lick the sores. That's not the picture. These are pariah dogs. Have you ever heard that phrase before these are wild nasty scavenger dogs okay they were not coming to be this man's best friend they were more like vultures circling a dying animal translation kind of i think it could be better translated because it makes it sound like oh they were coming to me it's just that's not the that's not the picture here it's not a pretty picture it's not a heartwarming picture And then the poor man dies. Verse 22. And he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. (laughs) What is that? We'll talk about that in a minute. But do you notice that all the action in relation to Lazarus is done to him? See the passive voice there again? Carried away. He was carried away. Same as back in verse 20. He was laid at the gate. He's powerless. He can't fight for himself. He can't take matters into his own hands. Instead, he meekly receives. And the rich man, all active verbs, even he's dying. Now, I guess he was buried. Okay, he can't do that. (laughs) He can't bury himself. Okay. But the rich man is very active. The poor man is powerless, so he's passive. And the burial of the rich man is noted. Okay. Does that mean that Lazarus was not buried? We don't know, but it's not mentioned. To the Jews of Jesus' day, to not have a burial was to leave the body open to the attacks of carrion birds and scavengers like those dogs. Okay, it also would have been considered to be under the curse of God. That's why, you know, in the battle in the Old Testament, they take these bodies, they take great risks to get those bodies and bring them back so they're not desecrated, either by being dismembered or by animals, you know, just eating them. Out in the open, So we don't know if Lazarus was buried, but it's interesting that it's noted in relation, that burial is noted in relation to the rich man, but not in relation to Lazarus. Verse 23, in Hades, okay, in the Old Testament, it's the place of the dead. It's kind of a neutral thing. Everybody that dies goes there. But in the New Testament, it's kind of the equivalent of a place of judgment, like hell, okay? So in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Talk about that. In a minute, he cried out and said, Father Abraham. That's worth noting. This guy read his Bible, folks. This isn't a pagan rich man. He knows Abraham when he sees him. (laughs) This is Father Abraham. So this is the nameless rich man. He's an Israelite. He considered himself a son of Abraham. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Very interesting on a couple points. One, he knows his name. He knows who that guy was that sat at his gate. He's not ignorant. Okay? So he knew his name, and amazingly enough, he still has the sense of superiority toward Lazarus that he doesn't even talk to Lazarus. He says, Abraham, would you send him? to serve me? He doesn't even speak to Lazarus. Send him so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I'm I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send him again, not speaking to him, to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So now the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus as his messenger boy Send him to my five brothers to warn them. Now, this could, at least in part, look like his first selfless move. He's actually concerned about his brothers. But again, it's not. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about earlier when he says in chapter 6, what credit is it if you love those who love you? Okay, so this was not a loving, selfless move for him to be concerned about his brothers. Abraham responds again. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. Yo, that is cheeky. Come on. Speaking to Abraham this way. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen, that's actually the same word as hear." If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Obviously some ominous foreshadowings because Jesus is going to rise from the dead and they're not going to be persuaded. Okay? So that's the parable. Now, quickly, a couple of points on the limits of this parable. Um, we can't, we've talked about this before when we've hit, up, hit parables, um, run across parables in Luke. We can't press the details of parables too much. If you were to, to do that, you would, you would think that, that um, well, you get all kinds of weird stuff. Like back in chapter 11, where um, God is like, you know, reluctant giver. And if you just kind of annoy him enough, then he'll finally answer your prayers. No. Don't press those details. There's not that one-to-one correlation. It's actually, if this, how much more so God? Okay, so there's some limits here. We can't press the details too much. Let me just mention two things. The fact that the rich man looks up and sees Abraham and calls out to him doesn't necessarily mean that those in hell will be able to see and yell across some you know, super grand canyon chasm to communicate with those in heaven. This is a parable. Okay, Jesus is making a point and the nature of communication between hell and heaven is not the point. It also doesn't mean that all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven. I mean, does it bother you a little bit? Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus, bad things. Now he's being comforted. So those of you that have good things, get ready. You're going to go to hell. Those of you that have bad things, it doesn't matter if you trust in Jesus or not, you'll go to heaven. No, that's obviously not the point. This is in the context of Luke. It doesn't undo everything else that's said in that book, let alone the rest of the Bible. Okay. Again, it's a parable, and we can't press it beyond what it's intended to say. So just a couple of of um, cautions there as we apply it. Now, let's consider several lessons that I think arise from this parable and its placement in the context of Luke, because some of the points are going to be connect, uh, contextual connections between something that Jesus said before or after um, and what he says here. So, first, if, you're, if it's helpful, in the bulletin, these are listed here. The first one, lessons from the parable, admiration and abomination, Okay, that language is from 16, 14 to 15. So look back there. Remember, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things, were scoffing at Jesus, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed, or admirable, among men is detestable or abominable in the sight of God. So this parable is actually illustrating that last point. The rich man would have been admired, especially by the Pharisees who were lovers of money. He would have been impressive, highly esteemed among men, at least some men who had the same values as he. The poor man would have been detestable among men. The rich man, he's clean. He's well-fed. He is fashionable. You wouldn't be embarrassed if you were walking through town with him. The poor man is dirty. He is starving. He is smelly. He's got sores all over his body. That is detestable. And yet, in God's economy, blessed are the poor, like it says back in Luke 6. And woe to the rich. We'll consider Luke 6 in just a moment. But admiration and abomination. So what? What, what does this parable saying about that? How does it illustrate that point? How is that a lesson? Okay. I think the lesson is this. The parable is intended to help us No blessing when we see it. How do you read blessing? What are your criteria for it? How would you know that the blessing of God was clearly on you? Or on someone else? Remember that story that I started with? Would you be impressed and jealous? Would you think, wow, what a life wish I could live this way, wish I could travel like that, wish I could do this, wish I could do that, or would you be saddened and concerned for them because you know that they're not laying hold of the life that's truly life? As David Garland writes, he says, wealth is not a barometer of one standing before God. It is both a source of peril and obligation. Does this text also, just implication here, abomination, admiration, does this text have anything to say about the health and wealth movement? Have you ever thought about why all the health wealth leaders live large, take big salaries, are always smiling big on their book covers? Because their lives are, they have to be, an advertisement for their religion. Do you think a poor, sickly preacher man or, in many cases in this movement, preacher woman is going to gain a following for that message if he or she is poor, sickly, and not admirable by earthly standards? Okay, so please, for the good of your soul, the good of those you may know who buy into that message and... Yeah, the so-called health-wealth gospel, it's no gospel at all, is an abomination in God's sight. That's strong language, I know. It's very politically incorrect. I'm not saying it with this vindictive, like, you know, it's more so, this is dangerous stuff. It's not good for our souls or anyone else's. And then, you know what really just ought to sadden us and anger us is that it gets exported. And the poor people in Africa and Latin America, and I'm sure you all see it, They hear this and they think, oh, if I just believe I could live like that. People who long to escape poverty and rightly so, they see, oh, faith as a ticket to become like that healthy, wealthy, smiling salesman or saleswoman, and they end up believing a lie. Who's the blessed one in this story? It's the poor beggar with sores. So we need to let God shape our categories for understanding blessing and what is abominable and what is admirable. Second lesson, this parable is Luke 6 illustrated. Okay, So turn back in your Bibles to Luke 6. There are so many connections with this text and others in the book of Luke. We won't touch on all of them, but this is just, here it is in technicolor. A parable illustrating what Jesus said back in Luke 6, beginning at verse 20. I'm going to skip a little bit, so maybe pay attention to the verses. I'll give you a heads up when we skip a few. So, blessed are you who are poor... Okay? Now, that certainly applies to material poverty, but it's not just material poverty. It's an echo of what Jesus said back in Luke 4, where he was called, anointed by the Spirit of God, he's the servant of the Lord, to preach the gospel to the poor. And in Isaiah 61, the poor are those who are needy in every sense. Okay? So it's not merely material poverty, but it certainly includes that. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Then look at verse 24, the corollaries, the tail side of the coin. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. This, he's joyously living in splendor with no concern to the man on his doorstep. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You see how this, is, this parable illustrates this text. Then verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you. 31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you like your brothers your five brothers. What credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. You don't need any grace to be able to do that. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. So Lazarus wasn't necessarily this man's enemy, but He was called to love his neighbor and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and his reward would be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men, and then be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So it brings us right back to that text and says, it's true, it's true, it's true. Here's reinforcement underlined. Okay, Spurgeon said this, Christians have no hell, but what they suffer here on earth. The unsaved will have no heaven, but what they have here in this poor, troublesome world. Christians have their sufferings here and their glory afterwards. The unsaved may have their glory here, but they will have their sufferings forever and ever. Lesson three, Abraham says wealth is not the problem. Okay? Um, Abraham's in this parable remember what was said about Abraham um, and again this is the one in heaven to whom the rich man spoke when Abraham sent his servant out to find a wife for Isaac this servant told Rebekah's family I'm Abraham's servant the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys So, woe to you who are rich. Does that mean everybody? No. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 14? He said, unless you renounce all of your possessions, you can't be my disciple. Does that mean you have to sell them all? Maybe. Maybe not. The point is, is ownership transfer. He owns it all. And so he is the one who's the Lord over your possessions. So you can be rich. And be in charge of your stuff and woe to you. You can be rich and God owns your stuff and is the one who guides you to dispense it by his will. And you are blessed and the kingdom of heaven is yours. You can be poor and you can be stingy and have your arm around all your stuff and you wish you were rich and it's woe to you. And you can be poor and know that God owns your stuff and you've renounced Mammon as your master, and blessed are you who are, who are poor. For you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So wealth is not the problem. Abraham, who was rich, is in heaven in this parable. Okay, so this is a heart, faith, obedience issue, not a money issue per se. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. Okay, as that last parable taught us, we can shrewdly use money to seek first the kingdom, to lay up treasure in heaven, and we should. It was John Wesley who said, and he made a lot of money in his day because he made these little pamphlets. You know, Rather than printing full books, he made these little pamphlets, and they were just getting sold by the droves. And so from little tiny booklets, he made tons of money. And when he died, he barely had anything left to give in his inheritance, because he would given it all away. So he said, make as much as you can so you can give as much as you can. Money, it's not the issue. That's not the issue. Wealth is not the problem. Zacchaeus would say, amen, Abraham. Okay, he didn't, give, he didn't sell all his stuff. He, he certainly remunerated these people he had stolen from. He generously gave, and salvation came to that house. You could tell. Joseph of Merrimathea. He says, amen. Wealth is not the problem. The women who supported Jesus out of their means. Remember that woman in Philippi? She was pretty wealthy. Purple dye. Okay? Wealth is not the problem. It's as a where is your heart, who has your heart, who is your master issue. It's a faith issue. And then it's a doer of the word issue. If that faith is genuine, it's going to work itself out in mercy and love and generosity to those in need around us, like the text that Todd read in James 1 and 2. Fourth lesson listen to Lazarus, the silent witness. Do you notice that Lazarus doesn't say a word in this parable? He's silent. But his silence speaks volumes in a couple of different ways. Listen first to uh, two excellent observations by. This guy, David Garland, he's he's got a good commentary on Luke. Lazarus, lying sick on the ground, used to have to look up while the rich man passed by him going through his gate. He was laid at the gate. He's seated, looking up. Have mercy on me. Now the rich man must look up. Did you notice the language? The rich man must look up to see Abraham and Lazarus at a heavenly feast. And then he says, second point, unlike the guests, do you remember this? Unlike the guests who scrambled for the seat of honor next to the host in Luke 14, Lazarus, who never was invited to an earthly banquet, is escorted to the seat of honor by angels. You see the reversal? He wasn't clamoring for the seat of honor. It was given to him, this one who was powerless and could do nothing to help himself. So, his silent presence in life and in death is this loud statement of the reversals of the gospel that we've seen over and over again in the book of Luke. And his meekness and powerless poverty is met with divine power to carry him to blessing and comfort and honor. Did you know know what the name Lazarus means? It means God has helped. If you would have walked in through that gate, if you were invited to that guy's party, and you walked by that guy, would you have said, aptly named, there he is, God's obviously helped him. It seemed like God had abandoned this guy. Sores, unclean. But better to have nothing and have the grace and promises of God than to have everything in this life and not have God's grace and promises. It kind of goes back to that first point. Where are our values? How do we read blessing? There's another thing to notice about Lazarus being a witness, even though it's silent. The rich man asks that Lazarus go and warn, or be sent by Abraham, and warn his brothers. Okay, Do you see that in verse... Um, Oh, where is it? <laughs> uh, 27, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. 28, in order that he may warn them. Okay? That word for warn is a form of the word that's used to refer to a witness. Okay? Which is used over and over again in the Bible, like, you're going to be my witnesses, Acts 1, and so forth. Okay? But Lazarus is not going to be a witness messenger to the rich man's brothers, But that doesn't mean he's not going to be a witness. He will be a witness, a silent one. Again, not to the rich man's family, but to the rich man and to the Pharisees who are listening in on this parable and to all of us who might be tempted to be caught up in the love of money, the worries and cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches that Jesus warned back back in chapter 8. So he's warning us, not in the way that he was asked to go warn the brothers, but silently with his life and example, because he's illustrating the truths of Luke 6. Fifth lesson. Faith is not natural, even in the face of the supernatural. Another way to say this is God alone gives ears to hear. What in the world does all that mean? Look at the last um, three verses. Abraham said, okay, so Go send them so that it will warn them. If, you know, if somebody comes from the dead, they'll definitely repent. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Bottom line, if the word isn't enough, someone rising from the dead won't do it. Okay, think of the other man named Lazarus in the New Testament. (laughs) Just think about it. He's a case in point. He died. Everybody knew he died. He was buried. He was in the tomb for three days. Jesus raised him from the dead in front of people. People saw this. They witnessed it. They're talking about it word travels fast. You were dead. You're standing right there. And the leaders of the Jews, they don't bow at Jesus's feet and repent. They plot to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. I mean, think about the irony in that. We're going to kill you. (laughs) Uh, I've already been there. Um, (laughs) John twelve nine. the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, Jesus, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Okay, so people are, have heard about this miracle. They're coming. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And then, of course, we start to connect the dots and think of the resurrection of Jesus himself. Remember that story that gets circulated after the resurrection of Jesus? You know, it's, it's recorded in Matthew 28. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city, reported to the chief priests all that had happened, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. You know, keep this on the down low and said, you are to say, here's a story, his disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep, and if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and the story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Bottom line again, if the Bible's not enough, if it's not sufficient, nothing will be. Okay, if the word is not enough, no magic or spiritual pyrotechnics is going to do it. In fact, if it does, oftentimes what happens is your faith is in some miraculous experience rather than in the promise and word and truth of God. Have you, this just came to mind. In Second Peter, this is crazy. Peter saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. He never played that card. He mentions in Second Peter, you can look at this later, the fact that they saw this, they heard this. And then he, then he goes on to say, but we have a word that's even more sure. And he talks about the scripture. <laughs> Paul had this vision of, you know, caught up into the fourth heaven. I'm not going to boast about that, actually. It just makes me uncomfortable to boast at all. I'm going to actually boast in my weaknesses. How, how can I prove to you the fact that I had these exalted visions? I'm not going to play that card because I don't want you to trust to be in me. I want you to trust to be in the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus. That can change you. Me and my experiences can't necessarily change you. So sometimes we think that the problem is that we don't have one thing or another to meet our needs spiritually. No, we've got the Word. We've got the Gospel. No amount of perfection in some sort of external situation and access to this, that, or the other thing is going to do it. Are we just exploding with amazing faith in the U.S. because we have a multiplicity of resources in our language? No, actually, there's some poor countries that have no resources in their own language. Maybe they have the Bible, and they cling to it, and they've got their, their faith just blows us out of the water, their example. Or sometimes have you ever thought this, you, know, if I could just have been there and seen it all, you're dealing with these doubts, and you know whatever. Then I, then I would really believe this, really? How about the Israelites at the Exodus? Have you ever thought about what they saw? I mean, I, I'm not going to take the time to do it, but just go through the 10 plagues, one at a time. You see this, and then you see Goshen protected. How's that happening? And then the sea splits open in front of you, walk through on dry ground, you know, like what's good man appearing on the ground, quail, you know, coming like more than you can shake a stick at falling into your laps. Blindness is not an information issue. It's not even a sight issue. It's a heart worship moral issue. Deafness to the Word of God is not just a, if only this would happen. Faith is not the natural response to the miraculous. Faith is a miracle of sovereign grace, it is a gift. And it comes not by signs and wonders. Now, God often uses signs and wonders to attest to the truth of the proclamation of the gospel. Think Cornelius, okay? That was miraculous. Dream on one end, dream on the other end. But what happened? He got saved when he heard Peter preach the gospel. Okay? So the, the kind of end game wasn't the miraculous. It was the gospel, the word of God being preached. So faith is a gift. It comes by hearing, like Romans 10, the word of Christ. And God must give us ears to hear. Okay? Okay? which we'll touch on a bit more in the last lesson. Okay, sixth lesson. Real faith loves showing mercy. Most certainly, Lazarus cried out numerous times while he was laying there, have mercy on me, right? That's the way the lepers cry out in Luke 17. That's the way the blind man cries out in Luke 18. And what did the rich man do? He stuck his fingers in his ears. Proverbs 21:13: he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered living proof in this parable. The irony is the one who in Hades is asking Abraham to have mercy on him and send Lazarus is the one who knew Lazarus' name. He heard his cries for mercy, and he gave him nothing. He had shown no mercy, and he's asking for mercy here remember that text that Todd read, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Real faith loves showing mercy. We're not saved by showing mercy, but when we're saved, we love to show mercy. He has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires, but to Do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's Luke 10 all over again. Good Samaritan. Jesus asked the one, you know, okay, so which one proved to be a neighbor? And the man had to say the one who showed mercy. Go and do likewise. That was what we were talking about at 9 a.m. this morning. And you know what? We as a church need to do better. We need to grow. We ought to want to. Not in some sort of, we need to be better. We need to be better. Why, why, why? We ought to want to show mercy and find ways to be authentically merciful and loving here in our context. And you know what? If you were there this morning, we're wrestling with, what does that look like? Because there's a personal level for all of us, and then there's a church level as we seek to be salt and light. And you know what? There's a bit of a reaction going on. I don't know if you, any of you have experienced this, if you've been concerned about these issues for a while. Sometimes, you know, there can be a too narrow, like, I help this person, help this person, help this person, and it's just kind of an in the moment handout, and I don't think about the bigger issues, and I'm not, I could be empowering, empowering them, et cetera, et cetera. And so sometimes we need to be wise there, and then people say, well, you've got to look at the whole big picture, and, you know, there's all kinds of other factors, and we need structural institutional change, and blah, blah. Yes, absolutely, holistic. But isn't it helpful to not overswing? Because sometimes what you could do is you could think, I can't really change this poverty unless all these things, all these factors happen all around us, and, and there's all this infrastructure change and this and that. And then we stop helping individuals. <laughs> you see how we could swing the other way? And here in this text it's saying, there's a guy you're walking past, and he's in need. Show mercy. Show mercy. Be wise, of course, but show mercy. So also we need to pray and think and dream and act as a church um, to see how to apply this personally and as a church. Finally, the ears and table that matter. Note two things. Here we're going to get to this Abraham's bosom thing. What does that mean? Verses 22 and 23 mention it. You remember back in John thirteen twenty-three. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. I didn't, I actually didn't know what this meant before this week. And this is really helpful because Abraham's bosom, I've heard of that before. What was, what was that? Some special place that, you know, just like some people were in Abraham's loins, now they're in his bosom. You know, this is weird stuff. Like, what? No, it's a table image. This is the table. So there are two tables in this parable. The rich man's sumptuous table and then the table at which Abraham and then Lazarus reclined. And Lazarus is given the place of honor to boot. Reclining, remember, you know, laying down. I did that a few weeks ago because there's a text back in 14 that talks about those dynamics. There's only one table that matters. <clears throat> and it's the table of the Lord. It's the place, it's a place at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And similarly, you know, there's only one food that ultimately satisfies. It said, Isaiah 55, oh, come, come and eat. So just like there's a table and there is a table in this text, there are also ears in this text. And then there are ears. Again, look at 29 to 31 again. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Okay? Remember back in chapter 14, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. And then Jesus says, it seems odd, right at the end before he moves into chapter 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so there, there are, there's a table that really matters and there are ears that really matters. And this text is saying, focus on the table that matters. The one out there, the wedding feast of the lamb, but then also, this table where we can participate in the new covenant grace of God by the mercy of God. We participate in that and we anticipate participation in the table that Abraham and Lazarus um, were at. And then there are ears that matter and it's our spiritual ears and we need to listen to God's word. So in closing, the, the title, A Great Chasm Fixed, Um, language comes right from verse 26. We all deserve agony in hell like the rich man. Every single one of us. The debt of our sin is astronomical. We are all by nature worse off than Lazarus, spiritually speaking. We are poorer and more destitute than he was. And there is no bridging that gulf between us sinful human beings and a holy God. There's absolutely no payment we could ever offer for that debt. But Jesus came to bridge that chasm. He came to fix it. He came in the words of Luke four eighteen, where he's quoting, he's reading Isaiah 61 and saying, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled to preach. He came to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So that's why he came and he took it all the way to the cross and he died to purchase the freedom and pardon that we all need if there's any hope of bridging that chasm. Colossians two thirteen. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If we really know that mercy, if we love the gospel, if we love the mercy that has been poured out on us undeserving spiritual beggars, He's paid our infinite debt. We know our bankruptcy apart from him. We've cried out, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Then we've tasted this mercy. We know our Father's mercy. We know the mercy of Jesus. And it fills us up, and we will become a people that are merciful. Not in order to gain entrance in order to make it across the chasm, but because we've already been carried across by grace. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you need to hear um, the rebuke that Jesus would give. I mean, read Revelation 3. They thought they were rich, and they were very poor. Maybe you need to hear the call to be merciful as your Heavenly Father has been merciful to you. And the more that we remember His mercy toward us bankrupt sinners the more that that mercy is going to well up in acts of mercy to our needy neighbors that are all around us. Either way, we need to fix our eyes on our merciful Jesus. And then he will reorient us and empower us to love like him in his name. So we're gonna close by singing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.